Today, BankInfoSecurity.com is speaking with Howard A. Schmidt, a true information security luminary. He is a pioneer in network, data, and internet security. During Howard's remarkable career in public and corporate service, he has seen it all from the inside. He began his information security career in government in the U.S. Air Force and helped establish its groundbreaking computer forensics lab. He then moved into law enforcement. Later, he left public service to head information security at software giant Microsoft and then also at online auction site eBay. After 9-11, he was appointed vice chair of the president's Critical Infrastructure Protection Board and was special advisor for cyberspace security for the White House. Schmidt is currently the international president of the Information Systems Security Association, ISSA. He has also served as the first president of the Information Technology Information Sharing and Analysis Center and as the co-chair of the Federal Computer Investigations Committee. He is a member of the American Academy of Forensic Scientists and an advisory board member for the Technical Research Institute of the National White Collar Crime Center. In addition, he served on the President's Committee of Advisors on Science and Technology. He has co-authored both the Black Book on Corporate Security and the Black Book on Government Security. His most recent book, Patrolling Cyberspace, Lessons Learned from a Lifetime in Data Security, is available from Larson Publishing and is on sale on Amazon.com. Welcome, Howard. Thanks, and it's great to be here. Um, we'll go right into the questions that I have for you. In your opinion, what is the number one information security threat on the horizon for financial institutions? Yeah, that's a really good question because the financial industry has done such a remarkable job over the past few years of shoring up their infrastructure, working together even with competitors to make sure that the institution itself, the enterprise itself, is more secure than ever. So I think the right answer to your question is that the end user, because as we have more control over our ability to interact with our financial institutions, we have uh, greater flexibility in working internationally, uh, sitting in a hotel room in London, for example, and, and transferring funds from one account to another gives us better control of what we're doing, but it also puts us as a sort of a hinge pinge uh, in making sure that, that we are secure. So the end user, the one that uses that services, is probably the biggest threat because not everybody is savvy about technology and more specifically savvy about what it takes and what it means to really be secure. Well, that leads right into my next question. Uh, the globalization efforts of international companies, including financial institutions, is far ahead of law enforcement's ability to protect them. What are some of the things you see happening to slow uh, the surge of international cybercrime, and what more can be done? I think there's a few things. One, first and foremost, the technology has really changed significantly. I mean, we've seen plugins to web browsers, for example, that do a better job of protecting the end user from, you know, inadvertently getting stumbling onto one of these phishing, one of these identity theft-related websites. We're seeing filters being placed in email clients, so these sort of phishing emails and identity theft-related crimes don't even get to someone's inbox, so they don't have the ability to click on it and then, once again, be caught by a, a, a web browser somewhere. 
but when it comes to the globalization, uh, what we see is the law enforcement community has been working very, very closely with the uh, private sector organizations, making sure that, one, that they understand that law enforcement is not going to come in and, and rip out their IT infrastructure to investigate a crime, that their work is partners, that oftentimes what we're seeing now is, is particularly financial services are hiring former high-tech crime investigators, whether they're federal agents, whether they're uh, investigators from uh, law enforcement agencies from around the world, or they're even local police officers, and basically so they can better understand what the needs of law enforcement are, but also help better protect their customers. And one of the examples I see more often, more often than not is where we see financial services see a particular trend taking place. They have their investigators obtain the information using the authorities that the financial institution has, getting in touch with law enforcement internationally, sitting down, working with them, making sure the evidence is transferred, and helping to aid in the prosecution of the criminals that are taking advantage of the customers, thereby doing two things. One, protecting the customers and, and their assets, but also sending a clear message that the institutions will indeed work with international law enforcement to send a, a message that you will be held accountable for your crimes. Now, is that to say all crime will be wiped out in the next few years? It's never happened in the physical world, not likely it's going to happen in the online world, but we do have much better resources, much better uh, coordination between financial institutions, international law enforcement, as well as the end users. And as far as what more can be done in that area, I think what we're seeing now is uh, through the harmonization of international laws. One of the loopholes that we saw for a number of years was where someone would go to a particular country that had no cybercrime laws, act with a level of impunity from that country, victimize someone, and the long arm of the law couldn't reach out to get them. So what we're seeing now with the Council of Europe uh, Convention on Cybercrime, the subsequent treaty, which has been signed by a number of countries around the world, we have better treaties and laws now that give us the ability to no longer uh, let criminals hide behind the national law because the laws are much more harmonized and more at uh, a level basis than they have been in the past. Okay. Um, well, this is a, a follow-up question to your answer there. We've got regulations and laws, such as GLBA, protecting customer information here in the U.S. How is personal information being protected once it leaves our borders? For example, like uh, a lot of the outsourcing of back office work uh, to companies in Asia. What's your recommendation? What's your recommendation how we can better protect our customers and our own corporate information? Yeah, I think there's a common misconception that those sort of uh, regulatory requirements and the protection of data somehow stop at the borders. That's not the case. I mean, it talks about the data itself. And one of the things that's, that's being done on a regular basis to help uh, extend that even further is the service level agreements, the contracts that the institutions will have with their outsourcing partners uh, that basically ensure that they will indeed protect the data at the same level, if not higher, then we have a requirement based on law, or in some cases, the corporate policy sometimes is even greater than what the law may require, because I think many financial institutions recognize how important it is and what a, an amount of trust that the customers put in the institution themselves. So consequently, when they let a contract with an outsourcing partner, be it domestically or be it internationally, what they do is they make sure as part of that contract 
that there are uh, points put in there that help make sure that their data is, is guarded. And if a breach should take a, take place, just like it happens anywhere in the world that we've seen in the past, that the proper notification is done to comply not only with law but also corporate policy. Okay. Um, if you were authoring the federal law on privacy and data breach disclosures, which I believe that they're working on right now, what would you want put in it? Well, I think uh, some clarity and some consistency. That's one of the issues that we're dealing with uh, when we start looking across the international uh, spectrum. As you know, you mentioned in one of your earlier questions, this is truly an international issue. And one of the most difficult things to do is comply with 27 different sets of laws, or even in the United States, uh, 50 different sets of state laws on data breach notification. So looking at consistency across the board so you can build it once, you can make it rich and robust and really worthwhile without having to change it depending upon where your customer is living at or in, in the worst case situation, depending on where your servers are, may dictate how you indeed protect the data. So I'd want consistency and I want uh, conformity across the, uh, uh, the spectrum when you're looking at authoring such laws. I think also we have to understand what's reasonable, what's not reasonable. Uh, and this through, comes through a whole uh, process of education of lawmakers as well as the, uh, uh, the corporate security people, making sure we understand what, what possible unintended consequences could be. For example, I'll give you a, a quick insight into uh, years ago when we were looking at some international, the Council of Europe Treaty, for example. There was a great deal of uh, concern about a provision that effectively made it illegal to do research around security vulnerabilities. So if a legitimate professor or a legitimate company was looking for vulnerabilities in a product, uh, that may be considered against the law. The same thing applies in data breach. If you're doing what you think is the best thing and it winds up that it has an unintended consequence of exposing more data than it is protecting, obviously that's something we need to think through. So these things need to be conforming, conforming to uh, specific standards, but also need to be very, very well thought out and not be a knee-jerk reaction to an incident taking place. When you look back at the number of uh, compromises that we've seen over the past few years, the numbers are staggering. They're very, very high. But when you look overall at the number of incidents where someone's data that had been compromised, something negative or something uh, bad has happened to that person, that's relatively small. Part of that's in, in response to the financial institutions responding very, very quickly, helping the people to protect themselves. So. The point being is when we start deliberating these things, we alter these things, we have to look at all the aspects of us to make sure we're making really, really good, sound decisions and good laws. We're not going to have a negative impact on innovation while still doing what we can to, to protect the end users. Um, going back to your book, um, Patrolling Cyberspace, your career in information security has been a storied one. May we ask that you talk about your most memorable, you won't believe it, but there we were story? Boy, that, that's really a tough one to talk about because there's been so many fascinating. I've worked with some of the, the great people in the industry that uh, uh, have challenged each of us, and myself included, to figure out the next best way to, uh, best way to fix something or to do something better, to do it quicker, or to do it uh, in, in a more enlightened manner. Uh, but I think one of the ones that was probably the, that sticks in my mind the most 
uh, was in the early days when we really didn't know a lot about uh, computer evidence or computer forensics as the term went. And we were out there using technology to identify uh, that certain crimes were, be, uh, were occurring using technology. And one in particular was we were always worried about not wanting to set what we call bad case law. And bad case law is defined where a decision uh, is made in a law enforcement environment that causes at some point when, the when something goes to trial for the judge to say, no, what you did was wrong, therefore it have a cascading effect that impacts the other. So we were very, very concerned about that. And in the early days, one of the big things that we had a, a lot of sensitivity about was we did not want any data altered that would impact your ability to successfully investigate and prosecute the case. And uh, part of that was we wanted to make sure that we followed procedures, even though we were building them as we went, so to speak. Uh, and we found an incident where they brought in a, uh, at the time the days were called MIS, uh, Management Information Specialists, now they're called IT folks, uh, in to assist on a case. And the individual not understanding the rules of evidence had saved some data to a disk, which totally changed the, data, the date that the uh, file was accessed, thereby creating some question later on by the defense attorney on whether or not it was done uh, by the law enforcement agencies deliberately to make their client look guilty. So that's sort of the one that I, sticks out in my mind the most as being, you know, boy, that was uh, sort of a turning point in, in, in my career. It wasn't the biggest case in the world. It was just a, a burglary case, but nonetheless, uh, really made me pay a lot of attention to doing things the right way moving forward. Oh, that uh, I, I remember reading that in the in the book, um, and I recommend everyone read your book uh, for the all the really neat stories that you have. Um, getting on to a, a pretty serious question: How vulnerable is our information infrastructure here in the U.S.? Uh, this would include not just man-made or man-caused events, but also events like hurricanes or earthquakes. Well, I, I think we, we are vulnerable, uh, although we have better response than we've had in the past. And, and let me explain that, if I could, on what I mean by that, because the greater dependency we have on a resource, the more vulnerable we, we become. Uh, and if you look at just simple things like the, the cost of, of fuel and our dependency on oil, the greater the dependency, the more changes in the way we do things have an impact on our day-to-day -day life. Well, I remember a time where, uh, in the early days, where when you had a pager, it basically did nothing more than vibrate, and then in turn you called a number to find out what your message was. That evolved into having a number that was displayed, which evolved into having a number and some text. and. Now, of course, we see mobile devices in which we get every piece of valuable information just like we would on a desktop or a mobile system. We have become dependent on that now for our day-to-day -day existence. So when that, when, that when that dependency exists, the vulnerability exists further. Now, more people are now depending on it, which makes us even more vulnerable because we no longer uh, think about carrying a pen and pencil with us when we figure we can just put our mobile devices and start using our thumbs to send a message. Uh, but when it comes to the ability to protect it, we now have much, much more attention paid to uh, protecting those sort of resources, whether it's protection against antivirus and, and worms and, and uh, trojans and things of that nature, or outages themselves uh, because of distributed denial of service attacks. 
those things will occur. They have occurred. Uh, we've seen recently, even here where I live in the Pacific Northwest, uh, we had eight days without power. We had eight days without Internet connectivity. We had eight days without phone service. Uh, and consequently, uh, that was somewhat of a hardship on a lot of people. Business wasn't transacted. You know, family members were worried about uh, family members in the area and things like that. But basically what had happened is that was restored in a relatively short period of time. Now, one may argue that eight days is a long period of time to be without these services, but it could have been a lot, a lot worse. Uh, and so the point being is we do have vulnerabilities, but they're not insurmountable. They're not things that we can't work around. We may experience some inconveniences and some shortfalls uh, in, for a relatively short period of time, but we look to mitigate the risk as much as possible, knowing we may have an, an outage somewhere, we may have an inconvenience somewhere, but the idea is to make sure that that is the short, shortest dur duration and impact the minimum amount of people possible. Um, well, this is a, a question I think that's pretty relevant right now. Um, the use of encryption software is being embraced by many businesses, uh, including the U.S. government uh, and financial institutions, to ensure that their data is going to be protected. However, criminals are also availing themselves to use the same software to hide their data from law enforcement. What's your opinion on who should be allowed to use encryption software? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, you know, I have long debated this issue, having lived in both worlds, the corporate security where, you know, I demand better encryption, easier to use encryption, and encourage employees and users, family members to use encryption. At the same time, the law enforcement side of my life says, yeah, the bad guys are doing it, and I have to have some way to go ahead and keep them from using it to prevent me from, from successfully completing an investigation. But I think what we do is we focus on the technology as opposed to the crime itself. And that's where I sort of get off on the side of, you know, encryption for the purpose of security far outweighs the risk that the bad guys would use it. For example, if a bad guy is using encryption to uh, uh, hide, hide the, uh, the possession of child pornography, that's tremendously problematic, uh, but by virtue of the fact that they're using encryption, doesn't mean that there, there's not other evidence out there that we can use to successfully investigate and prosecute this person. The same thing applies when we're dealing with hackers and the, and the hackers and the uh, things that they put out on hack servers where they encrypt data and hide it out there to hide their identity. At some point, they have to do something with that data. And that also becomes a, uh, a point by which we can gather more evidence to help prosecute. The last thing being, when it comes to encryption, the weak point of any encryption is the fact that the, whatever the passphrase or the password must be. And criminals are like human beings. They have problems re remembering complex passwords. They have to write them down. Uh, there's other methods out there by which one can acquire uh, the password. So it's not a zero-sum game. Uh, yes, there have been investigations in the past not involving technology that we've not been successful in, in solving, and I think the same thing will apply when it comes to the use of encryption. Uh, but there should not be a restricted use, but there should be penalties for using it, just like you would use, uh, you have a law in hiding evidence or corrupting evidence in a criminal investigation. Those laws, I think, are the things that are relevant and how you use it and for what purposes. That's, that's a very insightful answer. Thank you. Um, 
When you were the chief security officer at Microsoft, the Presidential Decision Directive 63 was released. Are we better prepared and protected uh, than when it came out nine years ago? Oh, absolutely, and that's one of the things that I'm uh, particularly proud of what we've done as a nation, and not only the, the, those in public service uh, at the time. I remember and as we were working on the President's Commission for Critical Infrastructure Protection, or the PCCIP, which was the organization, private public sector, that came together that, uh, that did the data collection, uh, which resulted in the creation of uh, PDD-63. And as I would go brief the, uh, the board from time to time, at the time I was the Director of Computer Crime and Information Warfare for Air Force OSI, and I would go meet with the folks and brief them and talk to them about some of the things that we'd seen in the Department of Defense and investigations of computer crime, what I had seen when I was with the FBI, what I'd seen with local law enforcement. And having that transition from all the, brief, all the briefings they received from myself and, and probably 20, 30, 40 other people, to see that transition into a presidential decision directive and ultimately resulted in the creation of the, uh, uh, the ISACs and a lot of the other things, which I hope we'll talk about later on, but ultimately resulted in the national strategy to secure cyberspace that we worked on when I was at the White House with uh, Dick Clark and the President's Critical Infrastructure Protection Board. Uh, now we have a full office in the Department of Homeland Security Virtually every government agency has an Office of Critical Infrastructure Protection. Uh, many private sector organizations now, companies have offices. If they're not called Critical Infrastructure Protection, they're part of a security function they have. Uh, we're looking at things around SCADA security. There's been a tremendous change, not only in just the awareness, but the actual execution of people doing things to make things more robust. Uh, so consequently, I think that was a real key turning point and where we are about protecting the, uh, the critical infrastructure, particularly the critical information infrastructure sections. Well, here's your follow-up question to that. Are the ISACs, the Information Sharing Analysis Centers, meeting the needs of the industries they cover, and what value do the ISACs offer individual corporations and businesses? Well, the first ISAC that was your Information Sharing Analysis Center that was created was the Financial Services uh, which really led the way in bringing even competitors I mentioned earlier together to share information not only about vulnerabilities and threats but also best practices. And that was one of the key things that I think when the Financial Services ISAC was first put together, uh, the ability to say, listen, you know, yeah, we may compete uh, in the marketplace, but when it comes to the trust, when it comes to security, when it comes to protection of privacy, we all have to, have to work with each other. Uh, followed on by the creation of the ITISAC when we created that, and uh, I w was very fortunate to be elected as the first president of that. Uh, the whole issue continued that whole philosophy that we need to share information with each other, not only what's bad out there, but also what are the things that we're doing right to protect each other. I think back to some of the instances where some of the early uh, uh, worldwide viruses or worms took place. And we'd see a lot of uh, uh, media attention on the fact that 350,000 systems were affected by this. But oftentimes it was in the background, and this is where one of the benefits of the ISACs came, came into play, where there wasn't a lot of attention to pay, well, why weren't these 14 companies affected by this? 
why were they able to protect themselves? Why were they not impacted either financially or technically from this particular event? And you generally would find out that the information that came within the resource of the ISACs would provide, here's how you protect yourself from this, and therefore they weren't affected. Now, the ISACs can be only as effective as the members are willing to share the information. And some companies feel more comfortable than others uh, in sharing it. Uh, and I don't think anybody's really viewed as, well, I share more than you, therefore you shouldn't get this. I think they've done a really good job in helping to make sure uh, that there is value to the individual corporations when they join. But oftentimes, like anything else, when you're, looking at, when you're talking about information sharing, uh, you get out of it what you put into it. If you're willing to put the extra effort, the information in there, what you get back is, is really, really worthwhile. Discerning what is important to financial institutions amid all of the cyber white noise is hard. What do you recommend we do to filter it out? Well, it's really interesting. I had a discussion with, a, with another security colleague of mine here recently via email, and it's one of the, the comments he had made, which I thought was really uh, amazing, that we know how to do these things. We know how to better protect these systems where in a lot of cases we just don't do it. And that's because people are always looking for something that doesn't exist out there. Uh, you know, the areas of intrusion detection, intrusion prevention, uh, the area of antivirus and anti-spamming and all these things, technologies are pretty good now where, in many cases, I feel we have matured to a level where those technologies are doing what they need to, need to be doing. So that what I would call, you know, paying a lot of attention to things that have already been built falls in that category to sort of the white noise. So what are the things we need to start paying more attention to that rise above that level? I think one of the first things uh, that we need to look at is the vulnerabilities that still continue to exist in software. Why aren't we using the automated tools that are currently out there that give you, gives one the availability and the ability to do an analysis of source code to make sure that we identify the vulnerabilities before it becomes a computer program that we'd run on our systems? The second thing with the proliferation of wireless, uh, wireless is just wonderful. I mean, I was one of the early adopters and, and use it every, expect to use it everywhere I go for, the, for uh, the most part. But basically what we look at, we oftentimes are now, we sort of forget the lesson we learned in early deployment of networks and saying, listen, we need to secure this before we widely deploy it. So consequently, we're in a situation where that's another piece that we need to, to raise, the, raise above the white noise level. Uh, the other thing is the opera operation, yes, operationalizing of uh, IT services. You know, for a long time, the, 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 the sort of specter of security was, you know, security group needs to do it all, and it's just not practical anymore. What we need to do is make sure that security is built into day-to-day IT operations. And then the next thing we need to look at is sort of moving the battlefield off of the desktop. Uh, as, as we know, uh, it's proven many, many, many times through testing, that the end user is not sophisticated when it comes to IT security, uh, whether it's uh, in a corporate environment or whether it's a home user environment. So therefore, we should not be putting the battlefield on their desk. What we should do is be moving it back to the gateways, using devices that take care of a lot of these things uh, ahead of time. Those are devices that you can rise above uh, the white noise and have just a simple home gateway device that, that blocks all that stuff from even getting to your system so you don't have to worry about it. 
And these are things that in each environment that, that a company or an individual could look at and say, yeah, I'm doing these things pretty good. Well, let me focus on these newer threats that we're looking at. Uh, and, and those are things we need to raise above the level of, of putting them in a category of white noise. Uh, customers use financial institutions that they trust. And with the recent authentication guidance issued by the FFIEC, are we moving in the right direction to increase that trust? Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the things is, is I've uh, talked with my colleagues in the financial services industry. It's not as if that the industry was not looking at these things and moving forward, uh, but basically there was not the perception there was a lot of consistency. So consequently, with the guidelines that have been uh, uh, put out by the uh, FFIEC, uh, what we see is a groundswell of people saying, yes, we need to move quicker, uh, we need to do more, and consequently, I think we're, we're uh, doing that. But that's only a small segment of it, and that's the part that I think is really interesting. We start looking at the financial industry overall. Even though there's much focus on that, it goes beyond just there when we start looking at the issues around trust and identity management and how we deal with people. You know, there used to be a time, the only time you dealt with a person was, you know, face-to-face. And then it sort of went with a piece of plastic uh, to to a machine. And now we see machines, machines, machine to machine doing things on our behalf. So consequently, the level of trust we have to have on the identity moves way beyond the financial services sector. So one of the things that, that you know, we recommend to many folks is we look beyond uh, the debate about financial services and financial transactions, although they're very important, and look at the fundamental question is, how are we going to do better identity management in the digital world and after the 21st century? Howard, I have two more questions, and then uh, we'll wrap up. Um, many smaller banks and credit unions uh, typically use vendors to perform much of their uh, IT services, information security, back office. Um, in working with those vendors, are there is there any advice that you would want to tell these vendors in regards to uh, information security? Yeah, I think there's, there's a couple things, and it goes both ways, not only for the vendor side, but also for the, uh, the companies looking to hire the vendor. Uh, this has been something that's been difficult for people to transition to over uh, the past few years. For a long time, as I mentioned earlier, security was sort of almost due to sort of this quarantine-type environment where only very, very few people had access to it, very, very few people had knowledge of it, so consequently anyone else was an outsider, therefore untrusted. And what we've seen over the past few years, it just doesn't make business sense to grow huge uh, security organizations. It's expensive. Uh, the recurring training becomes very expensive. Uh, it's a resource train. So consequently, focusing on the core competency of the company, for example, financial services, delivering financial services to a customer is the core competency. Security is a means by which to help one accomplish that. So understanding that those that you're outsourcing with are not the bad guys. They are trusted individuals. That's why you're dealing with them. And to look that direction to bring people uh, that have expertise that not only get to see your environment, to get to see other environments becomes very, very helpful because none of us are alone in this thing. On the flip side of the coin for the vendors is just one to recognize that the fact that oftentimes that a full-time employee is, is viewed as more trusted than a contractor or a consultant may be. 
and sort of factor that into it. It's nothing personal, uh, just the way that the mindset currently has been the past few years. Uh, but you also need to make sure that with the services that you sign up to and the, sign, the services you, that you agree to deliver, you indeed have the expertise and the ability to do so. Because particularly in the business of security, integrity and ethical behavior uh, is paramount. And the kiss of death for any company who wants to do business uh, with a large enterprise as a security vendor has to understand that they have to be able to show that they have that level of integrity, they have that level of ethic, ethical work uh, habits that basically make them worthy of that trust that the company puts into them. And that's sometimes a difficult thing to do. It takes some, uh, you know, things just as, you know, checking backgrounds, uh, making sure that your people come from uh, a culture where doing security for the good of security is the primary focus and not doing it to prove that you can break something. There's a lot of moving parts in that, but I think for the most part we're getting much better in understanding both viewpoints, both from the enterprise perspective as well as from the vendor perspective. Okay. Howard, final question. Um, any final words of wisdom for uh, all of us here in the finance financial community? Yeah, I think one of the things is uh, never forget to, uh, to listen to uh, – what people have to say in this space. Uh, I remember I remember a conversation I had with somebody one time. Uh, we were talking about a buffer overrun in a particular program, uh, and it was explaining that uh, you know you can type in 257 characters and, and this bad thing would occur. Uh, and the question was asked, well, why would someone do that? And the simple answer is because they can. The same thing applies here. So when you start looking at it, new services you want to offer to customers. If you want to look at uh, new security features you want to put in, not only do we need to consider the non-sophisticated technology customer that, that's looking for the services from the financial services, but we also have to outthink the bad guy. We have to think about these things in ahead, ahead of time. Listen to those. Sit around. Have brainstorming sessions on how you could break something. It's easy to build something that's really, really neat, something easy to use, and something that requires two mouse clicks to, to uh, complete a transaction. But if there's some underlying shortages in there relative to security, we need to further those out at the very outset and keep it from becoming a problem for our customers, which then in turn becomes a reputation issue for us as well. Well, Howard, thank you so much for taking this time to share your uh, insight and we will all want to go out and make sure that we go by patrolling cyberspace. And thanks again. Well, thanks a lot. It's my pleasure talking with you.